welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinaweber. Hello, friends. Happy Thursday. Happy interview day. We are very excited. We're always excited, but you all can't see this right now, but this man has on a bow tie. He has a sharp jacket on. It is a pleasure to be in the ether with him. We have with us Dr. Guy Richard, who's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of America, president of RTS Atlanta. And uh, Dr. Richard also wrote a great little book that I put into the hands of many, a book on baptism that's published by Reformation Trust. It's Ligonier, y'all. So Dr. Richard, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. And it's a delight, bow tie and all, uh, to you guys today. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Richard, would you just first tell us a little bit about yourself, background, family, uh, your role there at RTS Atlanta? Um, yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in the New Orleans area and uh, went to school at Auburn, Auburn University. Met my wife at Auburn. I was actually an engineer at Auburn, engineering graduate, and uh, went into sales right after I graduated. Moved around the southeast and uh, for working for Westinghouse in in the sales business electrical technical sales. And uh, we moved to Jackson, Mississippi in, uh, I guess, after we had been married for maybe a year or two and before kids and uh, moved there for for work reasons. I was, again, still in in technical sales. And obviously, uh, Ligon Duncan uh, was the pastor uh, at First Pres in Jackson. We started going to First Pres in Jackson. Friends of ours said, you got to go to First Pres in Jackson. There's no other place to go. So, we went to First Pres, and, and Ligon was instrumental in walking me through call to ministry and, and all of that. I started taking classes at RTS in Jackson because we were there in Jackson, and Ligon gave me a job on the staff. Uh, I was the uh, singles ministry intern for four years while I did my MDiv at RTS. And then from there, I went, uh, Ligon was part of that process too along with uh, several of the other professors, as they all encouraged me to go on to uh, do my PhD. I went, I graduated from RTS in 2002 and went to Edinburgh, Scotland and did my PhD at New College in Edinburgh in uh, historical and systematic theology. Studied with the same two men, actually, that Ligon studied with and uh, and then was there for three years. And then we came back and I was the pastor at First Pres, uh, First Presbyterian Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, For 12 years, the church was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. We had 58 families that lost everything uh, in the storm. We lost the church building. We had $4 million in damage to the facility. I was there for 12 years. Uh, We rebuilt the facility. We rebuilt homes in the community for a number of years after the hurricane. And then Ligon, in about 2000, I guess it would have been early 2017, Ligon called me and he said, I want you to go to Atlanta. And I said, yes, sir. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what got me here to Atlanta and I've been here in Atlanta teaching. I teach systematic theology, some historical theology courses. I can teach pastoral theology, uh, practical theology, uh, but mostly systematic theology. And, uh, I've, I'm also obviously involved in, uh, the administration of the campus. Awesome. Uh, so this is a podcast on the shorter catechism. So when were you first introduced uh, to the Shorter Catechism? You know, I don't think I was ever introduced. I became a Christian in college, the ministry of RUF. And when I became a Christian, we jumped right into the PCA church. 
I don't think, though, I was introduced to the Shorter Catechism until I was at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. And I think there under Ligon's ministry, uh, the Shorter Catechism was a, was a part of what he was doing. He would mention it in sermons, and it was part of what we were just doing in terms of discipleship. And I think that was really my first exposure to it. And how have you seen the catechism helpful, uh, maybe in your own life, um, family life, and, and maybe even particularly in your ministry context at, at the seminary? One of the things that the Shorter Catechism does is it helps you to express, to articulate theology quite simply, and yet obviously very profoundly, and it gives you a handle to be able to, to, to digest, but also to express, to articulate uh, what we believe. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I, I, not only as an RTS grad did I have to memorize the Shorter Catechism, uh, for, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, you know, it helped me with ordination trials. I mean, going through all of that in preparation uh, for examination, for ordination. Um, but in terms of just being able to still to remember, even when I pray, oftentimes I'll recite uh, the, the shorter catechisms, uh, if you will, definition of God. Uh, you know, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Uh, it's just a great way, a uh, short, pithy way of saying it, but yet obviously packed, uh, loaded. And then lastly, uh, on my end, just kind of getting to know you, uh, do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? Yeah, I would say uh, probably what a lot of people say, the first. Uh, and my reason for the first, I think, probably has a lot to do with the influence of John Piper. Interestingly enough, you know, John has made a mark um, uh, funny story, John preached uh, at a, a conference I attended while I was living in, in Scotland, actually, and a Scottish pastor, friend of mine, uh, after the, the message, John had said in his message, he was a seven-point Calvinist. And a friend of mine said, he's not a seven-point Calvinist, he's a one-point Calvinist. He's got one point, and he keeps speak, you know, preaching that one point. And, and I said, yeah, you're right, but it's a great point. You know, and 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 um, his point that he has just been it's been, been invaluable for the church is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and so Piper, I've heard Piper say that the first question of the shorter catechism needs to be rewritten. It's, it says, "What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever." And Piper says, "No, no, no. It needs to be man's chief end is to glorify God by." enjoying him forever because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, and uh, I think part of why I love that first question is because respectfully, I would say Piper's wrong there. That's exactly what the first question of the shorter catechism already says. You know, it, it says, what is the chief end? It doesn't say what are the chief ends. It says, what is the single chief end? And then gives two answers, if you will to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the divines, when they wrote it, knew that they were giving here not two different ends for man, but one and the same end. We glorify God and enjoy him forever. That one, those two things are one end. And for me, as I think through the Christian experience um, of being satisfied in God, being, you know, delighting in the Lord, as the very marrow of what it, of what Christianity is all about, uh, that is the means by which we can we, we glorify Him. That glorifying and that enjoying must go together. They will go together here. They'll go together forevermore.
Just to go back a second, as an Auburn grad, do you ever just let out like a hearty war eagle in the middle of lecture? War eagle. War eagle. There you no, go. Have not, actually. Uh, I do have, um, and, and this may be, depending on how many people are listening to the podcast and where they're from, it may be or may may not be uh, controversial or, or what have you. Uh, I actually have an autographed uh, Auburn hat from 2010 National Championship season autographed by Cam Newton. Uh, and it's sitting on my uh, shelf right over here so that everybody who comes in can see uh, Cam's autograph. So this is the days before his fancy hair and <laughs> and yes, indeed. delightful hats. Yes, indeed. Well, wear that proudly, sir. Good stuff. I, when I was in seminary, I was in Greenville, and that was in the Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence days of Clemson. So cloud nine would be an understatement on how all those South Carolinians were feeling uh, at that time. That's great. That's great. Well, we've got you here for the Shorter Catechism, and we came to you because you are an expert. I'll, I'll say you're an expert um, on the subject of baptism. And so you wrote a book several years ago on the very non-controversial, debatable topic of baptism uh, titled Baptism, Answers to Common Questions. Uh, it's an excellent resource. I'd recommend it to anybody. What made you want to wade into these waters and write this book? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Stephen. Um, it actually started when I, um, when I got to the church where I pastored First Presbyterian Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, I started a new members class, and so many people were coming up to me after the service being a traditional Baptist area, asking one of two questions at the end of the service, you know, saying goodbye on the way out the door, they would ask me, you're Presbyterian, tell me about predestination. Or they'd say, what is, what is this that you guys do with babies, with water? You know, tell me about that, that infant baptism thing. And it got to the point where so many people were asking me questions on those two issues that I included a week on each in my new members class. And the very first time that I taught on infant baptism or just baptism in general, what I would call, I don't actually like the label infant baptism. I prefer covenant baptism, but whatever we want to call it, when I taught on baptism for the very first time, someone came up to me afterwards and said, you need to write that down and you need to publish it. And I, I just dismissed it and went actually went on a, um, a teaching trip to Ukraine with one of my former seminary professors. We went to teach a class. I taught an intro to theology class, I think, for two weeks in Ukraine a number of years, uh, or maybe it was a, the, the year after this, I started teaching this new members class. And someone asked me a question on baptism, so I kind of launched into baptism. Well, my former professor was in the class, and he said, you need to write that down, and you need to publish that. And again, I said, well, yeah, maybe, we'll see. Uh, and so after enough people said something to me, I said, well, you know, maybe I need to write that down and maybe I need to try to publish it. So I wrote, started writing it down and I sent it to a friend who actually works for Ligonier. And he, I said, just tell me what you think. And he said, well, not only do I love it, but we want to publish it. And I was like, all right, that's great. So that's how, that's how it kind of fell into place. It was really the Lord and, and just people who, um, who recognized some value and, and some helpfulness in what I was teaching uh, and so I was humbled to be able to, to, to publish that. If only you had listened to them a little bit earlier, we could have had a couple more years. That's right. In front of that. <laughs> um, 
Well, that's great to hear. And I, I think that just speaks to the accessibleness of this book. It is not highbrow. Uh, you're not diving into the minutia of Greek grammar uh, throughout the book. This is a very accessible book that any of our listeners could profit from. So this topic, even among you know, like-minded Presbyterians, Baptists, we agree on a whole bunch of things, but baptism is kind of that elephant in the room that either we don't want to talk about, or if we do start talking about it, we raise our voice or we get exasperated. That's right. In order for our discussions regarding baptism to be profitable and to avoid talking past one another, where would you recommend as a pastor starting our discussions on baptism? Yeah, you know, I, first, I think the first thing I would say is there really needs to be a relationship uh, before you can have a productive conversation. Um, and I think once you have that relationship, that will af- ought to affect the tone of the conversation that you have, because this is such a an incendiary, such a such a, a divisive uh, a topic. I think that that has got to be something that's there. Uh, that doesn't mean we never talk about it with people we don't have relationships with, but I think there's something uh, that, that that can moderate that divisiveness when we have a relationship and we actually love each other and and know each other and care for each other. And the other thing I would say after that is. Really, it comes down to um, within uh, within with our Arminian Baptist brothers and sisters uh, and dis- disagreements there. Really, it's about the continuity of the Scriptures. You know, if you do not see any continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, then you're never going to see co- the argument for covenant baptism. And so, that's one of the starting places. Obviously, that that uh, we need to then. Uh, Once we have a relationship, we need to have that discussion in terms of what kind of unity, what kind of continuity is there between the Testaments. And when we get into our discussions with our Reformed Baptist brothers or those uh, from a non-denom background that are are Reformed leaning, uh, who already will see some continuity between the Testaments, uh, the question is how much continuity and how much discontinuity. And that's one of the things that floored me when I wrote the books. I wrote the book not to be divisive. I wrote it to try to be unifying uh, and trying to be gracious and winsome and bring both parties together and say, this is wrong that we've been dividing over this for, for so many centuries. We need to <clears throat> we need to unite and we need to be together and, and to love one another through this disagreement and, and, and talk to one another. But so many of my Baptist brothers and sisters uh, you know, are have never heard a good argument, a good biblical argument for why we baptize children. And so that was part of what I wanted to do as well, is give a good biblical reason, not to necessarily to convince anyone who was already coming from a credo point of view, but to give them a good argument that they could hear and see and digest for the first time and know where, where their brothers and sisters are coming from. Uh, and so um, but the one thing that, that really struck me and drove me to that conclusion is I realized that whoever we are, we see continuity between the Abrahamic covenant, let's say, and the new covenant. And whoever we are, Reformed, if we're in the Reformed camp, at least kind of in the Reformed camp, we see continuity between Abraham and the new covenant, We and we see discontinuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. We all acknowledge continuity and discontinuity. The whole argument comes down to how much, how much continuity, how much discontinuity. 
our Baptist brothers and sisters will see more discontinuity than continuity. But they acknowledge the continuity just as well as we do. And obviously, I would say there's far more continuity uh, than than my Baptist brothers and sisters would, would want to say. And so I think those are some of the, and because of that, obviously, not only the continuity of the Old Testament and New Testament, but covenant theology uh, plays into that too. And, and so those are some of the initial starting places. The temptation, right, is to jump to what you believe your trump card to be, to your proof text, to talk about household baptisms, to talk about you must repent and believe in the gospel, then be baptized, right? So instead of doing exegetical whack-a-mole, it's probably profitable to take the overhead vantage view, see that there are covenants that structure scripture, not dispensations, uh, and, and then to determine how much of the old covenant carries over into the new and in what form, because there is a change of form. Um, and we're going to talk about that. So starting theologically, really helpful. Now let's, here's a, here's a question, right? What do Presbyterians believe baptism does? Do we believe what Roman Catholics believe? Do we believe that ex opere operato, every person who necessarily receives baptism is regenerated? So could you answer these questions? What does baptism do and what does it not do? Yeah. Yeah. Baptism is a sign and a seal. And so what does baptism do? Well, it signifies and it seals. It signifies uh, everything that is, if you will, uh, contained in the covenant of grace. It signifies what the covenant of grace represents. Uh, it's a signpost. It represents uh, the covenant and the promises of the covenant, all of the blessings of the covenant. It points to, uh, just like a sign on the side of the road would point to the destination or a sign walking into a store uh, tells us this is that particular store. It identifies, it signifies signs, it represents, it points to uh, those kinds of things. So all of the, the blessings, the righteousness that is ours, the forgiveness of sins being washed of our sins is what is being signified in the in water being applied to the to the uh, outside the external body, uh, but it's also a seal. Uh, everything that is signified, everything that is promised in the uh, in the new covenant, is therefore sealed to the believer. Uh, well, sealed to the individual, the recipient. Uh, if the person uh, believes, then all of the promises of God are uh, sealed if you will, uh, to, to that person. Um, if the person does not believe, then the ceiling is obviously unto condemnation. Uh, it makes it far worse for someone who's been baptized uh, and rejects the gospel, having heard the gospel and having received the external sign of God's covenant people to then turn their backs on Christ than if you had never heard of him uh, at all. Writer of Hebrews says, you know, how can he who has tasted, uh, we have our confession says those who maybe even participate in the common operations of the spirit, they have the external look of sanctification, no, though not the inward heart of sanctification. It's worse for that person to leave the church than the person who'd never been born into it and brought up under its watching care. That's right. Yeah, we all like to cite uh, the words from, who was it, Uncle Ben and Spider-Man with great uh, was it great power comes great responsibility? 
but there's a biblical truth there, maybe not great power, but with great privilege comes great responsibility uh, to whom much is given, much will be required. And, and I think that's the whole point here too. Uh, the more uh, of the gospel community, right? The more of the covenant community you partake of, the more will be required uh, of you in the end. Hmm. Now, how does the Old Testament, so coming back to the point that you had made previously, that the Old Testament and its theology of covenant informs the New Testament's theology of covenant and the sign of the covenant being baptism, how does the Old Testament inform inform our Reformed view of baptism? What do, what do we see in the Old Testament that causes us to you know, put water on babies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and really, um, that is the, that's, that's where you have to begin uh, in terms of uh, the, the argument for covenant baptism to see that, bap- that infants, uh, children of believing parents, ought to receive the external sign of God's internal inward covenant. We have to start in the Old Testament because there is nothing explicit. Uh, what we oftentimes hear from our Baptist brothers and sisters is that um, is that there's no passage in the New Testament that teaches uh, covenant baptism or infant baptism, pedo baptism, and the implication, if it's not out, it's not explicitly said, it's at least implied. But there are New Testament passages that do support credo bapt- the credo baptist position, and what my argument is, the New Testament supports neither. There's no explicit passage in the New Testament that supports pedo baptism. And there's no explicit passage in the New Testament that supports credo-baptism. So whoever we are, whatever we believe, we have to dig a little deeper than simply looking at surface proof texts in the New Testament. And there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm happy to do that if you want me to, uh, but we I do some of that in my book as well. Um, but if you go back into the Old Testament and see what you see, the links that we see are that within God's community— uh, covenant community, beginning in Genesis 17, we see God very explicitly command Abraham that he needs to give a, an external sign of what I would say, my Baptist brothers and sisters will disagree with me, but I will say is an internal covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, I would suggest, is essentially, substantially the same as the new covenant. The new covenant, uh, And so that there is are there differences? Yes, there are. There is discontinuity, but continuity is the uh, overriding, overarching theme. And so I would say what you see in Genesis 17 is God's inward covenant. God commands Abraham to give the external sign of that inward covenant to infants at eight days old. That is crystal clear. No one can debate that. The debate then comes, what does that have to do with us? How does circumcision translate? How does that apply? Or, 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 you know, what is the interaction between circumcision, the relationship between circumcision and baptism? Is circumcision just a national badge? Is it just a sign of ethnic membership? That's right. This is what our Baptist friends would say, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what is the relationship between circumcision and, and, and baptism? What is the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant? And if we can show that the Abrahamic covenant is substantially the same as the new covenant, and if we can show circumcision is substantially the same or is 
um, is a pointer to, right, a foreshadow of, a type of baptism that would come and replace. If we can show both of those things, then the obvious implication is that we need to be doing with baptism what our forefathers were doing with circumcision in the Old Testament. So all these questions that we've been talking about baptism probably brings more questions. So, you know, as a, a pastor, you know, maybe even just as a believer, what are some common questions or concerns that you hear about baptism and not just infant baptism, but, you know, me working on a college campus near the beach, you know, you got the let's go get baptized in the ocean type of question. So, so what are some common questions about baptism as a whole, but, and then how do you answer some of those questions? Yeah, that's great. We can go in a lot of different directions there. We could probably spend an entire podcast, maybe two, uh, talking about some of those uh, those common questions and and or objections and, and how are you offering? Them. Are you offering? What's that? Are you yeah. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to to do to do more. Uh-huh. I enjoy I enjoy talking about uh, uh, the Bible. I enjoy talking about theology. Obviously, I enjoy talking about baptism. Uh, I have uh, in um, in about 120 pages, so I enjoy I enjoy that. Obviously. But in terms of, of the most qu- common questions, I think some of the ones that I would I would point out are there's a there's a com- probably the most common misconception or objection that I hear is from our Credo Baptist brothers and sisters who will say, you know, the Bible, the New Testament teaches it clearly supports the baptisms in the New Testament are baptisms of believers by way of immersion. And what I am trying to do and say is that's not true. We can't say that. You know, the 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 prepositions that are oftentimes used to indicate immersion can't be used to indicate immersion. We oftentimes will say, well, the fact that, that Jesus went down into the water and came up out of the water, that those prepositions down and into and up out of indicate Jesus must have been immersed. He was went down into the water by way of immersion and came up out of the water after being immersed. And that may be true. That's possible. It's possible. It certainly doesn't seem to be the likely um, uh, interpretation because of Acts chapter 8. Uh, Acts chapter 8 is the, um, oh, it's the, um, I think it's, what is it, the Ethiopian eunuch as being baptized, I'm trying to pull it up here. Yes, and in Ethi- the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, Acts chapter 8, we're told that he wants to be baptized, and they see water, and he says, see, here's water. Uh, let's be, you know, let me be baptized. Uh, what prevents me from being baptized? And uh, they both were told in verse 38, they both went down into the water. And so if the prepositions down into signify immersion, then this means they both were immersed. Because as they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. But then it says, he, Philip, baptized him, the eunuch. So the idea seems to be not that these prepositions refer to the mode of baptism, but actually are just talking about the fact that they walked down the bank of the river. They went down into the river and they either and they stood in the river. Perhaps they were immersed or perhaps Philip immersed the eunuch. Perhaps he just sprinkled water on top of his head. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, And so uh, that's one common misconception, you know, and and we use that language all the time. If we were to walk down into a river, we'd say, 
I went down into the river, even if we were not immersed. If, you know, when I play golf, I mentioned this in the book, uh, I, I don't play as much as I would like to, but when I was playing a lot of golf and my ball happened to go into the sand trap, uh, I would say, uh, I, need my, I need to go into the sand trap and hit my ball and come up out of the sand trap. Uh, and, and I certainly didn't, wasn't referring to uh, being immersed uh, in the sand trap, um, uh, but I was just referring to, you know, walking down into the trap, which usually is a bunker. It goes down. And so you're walking down into the trap. And so that's one very common misconception or objection is the New Testament passages teach believer only baptism by immersion. And what I've been trying to say is we cannot make that claim. We need to do some more heavy lifting before we can say what the Bible's actually teaching on baptism, the recipients of baptism, and the mode of baptism. We need to do more than just look at isolated texts in the New Testament because the New Testament doesn't uh, stipulate clearly either the recipients or the mode of baptism. So that, that's one I think you know we could talk about um, should, should, should someone be baptized more than one time? Uh, I do take that up in my book and, and answer that. I had a member of the congregation where I served who was actually baptized, I think, three times and was struggling with, with, with coming to grips with whether or not any of them actually took. Uh, and so should he be baptized a fourth time? And I said, no, do not be baptized a fourth time. You know, baptism is something we do once, whether we do it by way of immersion or whether we do it by way of sprinkling, it's something we do once. Uh, and, um, I give a good example of that in the book as well. well that's awesome. Uh, well, again, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, last thing we want to ask is one thing, um, what we want our listeners to do is can continue this conversation. You know, the often I think in Christian circles, we, you know, we hear a teaching on something and we just kind of, okay, that was good. And, but so any resources to, to help people think through this fuller? Uh, so any thoughts there? Depending on what what um, what aspect of baptism, if you want to uh, look at covenant, uh, Dick Belcher's new book on covenant theology has got a fantastic section. Uh, Dick Belcher teaches at the Charlotte campus for RTS, and Dick has got a fantastic section on the Baptist argument, Baptist covenant theology, which is extremely helpful to be able to not only see lay out reformed, uh, Westminsterian covenant theology, but he also looks at how that differs from, from a Baptist point of view, both in a 1689 and um, in what I think what he calls a more classic uh, expression. Uh, and so that's very helpful. Uh, I don't know exactly what page it is. You, it's, it's in one of the chapters. I think it's pretty easy to find in, in the table of contents. Um, <clears throat> if you're looking at baptism, I would obviously recommend my, recommend my book. Um, the reason I wrote it is because there's just nothing out there, really. I mean, you've got things like John Murray's book on uh, baptism, uh, which is very helpful, but it's a, sometimes a little intimidating for lay people. Uh, it's, it's great. If you know Greek and Hebrew and want to interact with some of the languages, John will get into some of those kinds of things, and, um, and that's great. But if you, uh, if you, you know, and then you've got some simple, some simpler things, more entry level things like John Sartell has a booklet on baptism. Brian Chappell wrote, Chappell wrote a little booklet on baptism. I tried to position this in, in terms of between those two, if you want to call them poles and provide something that would be introductory, but also give enough meat so that it would answer 
more in-depth questions that people might have after simply reading an introductory work. Uh, the work uh, that you guys may be familiar with on uh, William the Baptist, that's a pretty good resource as well. And there are a couple of works that are actually being published in the process of being published now that will also be helpful when they come out. They're not published yet, but I know of two books that are coming out in, in the near future on baptism. One, a more academic work that is coming out. Uh, both, I think, are being published by PNR, and um, and both of those, I think, will be helpful as well. Jibby Fesco has a book. Word yes, he does. Spirit. That's right. That's right. We interviewed him on the podcast, and I want to say the resource that I typically give people, other than your book, is Big Leg's lecture. He has a Sunday school lesson. Uh, Big Leg, y'all. That's uh, Ligon Duncan. Uh, that is, <laughs> you know, um, Ligon Duncan has an excellent Sunday school class that he did, and it's on YouTube, and it is very helpful. He talks about, you know, we're all, all as you had mentioned, we're all arguing from some level of silence. There's no explicit proof text in the Bible that says don't baptize babies. Right. right. So, but the nor is there a proof text that says you shall baptize babies. So we, as you said, we have to kind of get under the proof texts and see the theology that undergirds it all. So I would recommend that one too. Uh, you seem to like him. We all like him here on the show. So. Yeah, he'll he'll do in a pinch. Uh, you know, um, yeah. it's fantastic. Obviously, uh, if he's listening to this, he'll he'll. Uh, I don't mean to leave it with saying he'll do in a pinch. Uh, Ligon is fantastic. He's been a dear friend and mentor to me for many many years, and he is fantastic at just about everything he does. So yeah, I have not uh, listened to that particular resource, but I can imagine it's well worth the time spent to do so. My man Tommy over here. He's our tech guru. I'm the Luddite on the podcast. So he will put that in our show notes, link that to folks. And we'll be doing a book giveaway of your book, Baptism Answers to Common Questions uh, in the very near future. So hang on for that, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Richard. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Love what you guys are doing. Keep it up. And love having everybody back for the show. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep it short. Oh,
visible church. <laughs> 